Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy and Euro-dollar global monetary system expert, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, we've got a lot to talk about, my friend. Do we? Yeah, I, I, th I thought, you know, it's pretty boring around here, isn't it? I, I thought maybe we we're going to struggle with topics today. <laughs> no, no, no. We have a lot to talk about. Before we get into it, I want to remind everybody that you are going to be a speaker at Rebel Capitalist Live coming up in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. So everybody's got to get their tickets ASAP at rebelcapitalistlive.com. I don't even know if I told you, but we're uh, Peter Schiff is going to be there, Maloney, Mike Maloney. And I just spoke with Bob Murphy. You know Bob, oh, right. don't you? Yes. Yeah, he's he's going to be there as well. So a lot of fun people, a lot of cool people. Uh, I'm really excited for it. So anyway, got to get your tickets ASAP. Jeff, what's on your mind? I know I've been listening to your podcast, which is fantastic every single day. And you're talking about uh, the jobs numbers kind of taking a turn for the worse. But you also sent out a tweet last night that I thought was fantastic that the lowest unemployment rate in U.S. history was followed up by an actual recession one month later. So I guess we could go ahead and start there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Janet Yellen said in February, after the big jobs report, you don't have a recession when the unemployment rate is at a 50-year low. And I'm like, well, no, that's not true. Because <laughs> in fact, if you look at recessions throughout history, what you'll see is that they usually are preceded by a re really low unemployment rate. That's usually where they start. Um, and then, of course, the the, the most the ridiculous, absurd example is the lowest unemployment rate in modern U.S. history, the modern statistics, which I believe was two and a half percent, somewhere around there in 1956. And as you said, George, it got to two and a half percent June and July 56 or, or May and June 56. And then the recession began the very next month. Right. So if the lowest unemployment rate in history is no protection against recession, that, that's just kind of a worthless talking point there. Yeah, and, and that's really kind of the, I think, the main thrust of the mainstream economist's argument is just all about the unemployment rate, the unemployment rate, because they're just trying to figure out aggregate demand. But you do a great job in looking at all of these kind of esoteric curves. And I think the basic one that we could start with is just the twos and tens. And, uh, you know, I've been talking about that on this channel for months now, and uh, I think it most likely predicted what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse. But uh, I want to point out, I do this on my channel all the time, that usually the stuff doesn't hit the fan when the curve's inverted. Usually the stuff hits the fan after the curve is no longer inverted, and it uh, uninverts, if that's a word, by the front end going down. So do you want to explain that dynamic to the viewers? Yeah, that's when you know the fan and the feces have gotten together. Yeah, because you're right. The, the inversion is the warning. Hey, we're really worried about something. And it could be some, it could be several somethings. It could be, as you said, there's a deflationary money potential. It's the bad economy. It's the combination of those two. And what happens is market participants begin to hedge. And the more they hedge for those bad outcomes and the more they're joined in their hedging for those bad outcomes, that's what distorts the curves. Because yes. these curves should always be upward sloping. They should be beautifully upwards, not steeply upward sloping, but gently upward sloping because that's just the way finance works. That's the way normal times work. We're always thinking about things in the future. Um, rates should be relatively higher going forward. So if, if more participants are hedging because they're worried, 
that distorts these upward sloping curves to the point they get inverted. And as more are hedged for something they're concerned about, and fewer are willing to hedge or willing to take the opposite side of the trade against the hedgers, the curve gets more and more and more inverted, which tells you the market is increasingly worried about some future event. And the, the depth of inversion, as well as where that inversion takes place, gives you a sense of both probability of that event as well as timing. Mm. And that's where we get into the other form, of, the other part of the inversion process, which is the bad steepening. Because right. when the curve bad steepens, that means that whatever we're worried about, that's that's imminent. That's about yeah. to happen. And, and just to clarify, the bad steepener is when the front end goes down, not the long end going up. Yeah, when a curve is inverted, there's two ways out of it. There's, either way is steeper. The good way would be is if the long end rates rose to, you know, normalize to where the short end rates and the short end rates don't really do much of anything. That right. would be the market saying, we were worried about something, but now we're not. Well, that was all a big nothing. Sorry, no, nothing to see here. Everything went back to normal. That obviously didn't happen. And of course, I don't think it has ever happened. Once we get into inversion, the, really the only way out of it is the bad steepening, which is where all rates start to go down, but the long, the short-term rates start to go down much, much faster than longer-term rates do. And that's the market saying that um, short-end policy rates are going to drop because even the Federal Reserve can see what we're worried about is actually going to happen or has already happened. That's really the, the scary part is it may have already begun and then the Fed always reacts to it. So short end rates go down faster than long end rates and the curve steepens out, but in the wrong way. And that's really more about timing than anything. Yeah. And another timing component just is what I've noticed as far as the stock market, we'll use that as a proxy, that the majority of the decline in the S&P typically happens after the Fed starts lowering rates. And when most people think that, well, once the Fed, you know, if anything hits the fan, then there's nothing to worry about because then the Fed's going to drop rates and the market's going to rip higher. But when you look at history, you see that, that that's not usually what happens. Usually once the Fed drops rates, that's when it uh, the market really goes down until they get to zero. And then after they've already gotten to zero, then the stock market usually responds. There's always that knee-jerk reaction in the that initial period because it's not really that clear. The, mar the bond market, it's perfectly clear. This, this stuff is getting bad. It's going to get really bad. It's, it's going to get worse. The stock market's kind of like, well, we don't really see it yet. And that this will mean that maybe the Fed can save us. The Fed will start cutting interest rates. It's not really that bad. A few rate cuts like in 2019, maybe everything goes back to normal. So let's buy some shares because the rate hikes are over. So all the pain of rate hikes, that's done. The Fed's going to cut a little bit and everything will be Goldilocks and fine. Right. By the time the Fed gets to steep a rapid series of rate cuts, which is what our markets are pricing now, then everybody altogether goes, oh, shit, mm. because now we see it really was a bad thing. The markets were really right. The curve inversions were really right about it. And then we realized that rate cuts aren't going to save us at all. So then it's sell, sell, sell. But there's that there's almost that honeymoon period in between where, you know, like October of 2007, the crisis had already erupted. The Fed started cutting rates and stocks went to a new high because everybody thought, well, Ben Bernanke's got this covered. A couple of rate hikes and we'll be out. It's not that big of a deal. The economy doesn't look that bad. And then suddenly it was like, oh, this looks a lot worse than we thought. And then, you know, there was that one point in January 2008, less than two weeks, the Fed cut rates by 125 basis points. 
And the market was like, straight off a cliff because everybody finally realized what the inversions were warning about were something you should have paid attention to. Yeah. And same thing in March of 2020. Yeah. Remember the, the Fed, I'd say that all the time. The Fed came out with that emergency meeting. I think they're supposed to be in on Wednesday. They met on the Sunday prior, dropped rates to zero, QE infinity, commit to a trillion a day in repo. And the market was down the next day by like 1500 points. Yeah. But don't forget, George, it was actually up right after the announcement. Remember the Dow and the S&P? Like the they, futures? Yeah. The futures in the Asian trading were up huge. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait a minute. And then, then it crashed <laughs> into the, into the, uh, into the, the European and then the day session. So there's always that knee jerk reaction that the Fed is going to provide some punch pull. And then rationality sets in later, like, oh, wait a minute. The situation must be really bad if the Fed has to respond in such a big way. Right. And is it safe to assume that the bond market is telling us that Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, Credit Suisse, that really wasn't the problem? Because if that was the problem, then the Fed comes in with their whatever the new facility is called, and they kind of patch it up. And then you would see the curve steepen out in a good way. But instead, we've seen the opposite. I don't believe we've seen the opposite. The curves today are in some ways worse than they were last month. And remember, they're looking forward, not backward. So you're right. If Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and the Fed with its dollar swaps and its BTFP had fixed everything, Markets wouldn't be bothered at all. But what they're saying is that B, uh, SVB, all that stuff last month, that is just the confirmation that what we was worried that we were worried about is actually beginning. It's yeah, right. just starting. That wasn't the end of it. That was just sort of the opening opening salvo of what were what will really come. And you look at the way the curves have moved the last couple days, and it's just it's just it's even like I said, it's even more extreme. To, to give you an example. Um, the spread between the June 2023 and December 2023 Eurodollar futures contract has gotten to today almost 100 basis points inverted. That's just insane in such a short period of time, especially since it's that close. June to December is, it's not saying, the, the market's not saying that we're going to get 100 basis points worth of rate cuts in the second half of this year. What it's saying is the probability at the at the, at the top is, that rate cuts are almost guaranteed in the second half of the year. However many there's going to be, there's it's almost guaranteed to happen. And that the other side of the probability spectrum is we could be down to what two two one percent by the end of the year. There could when the rate cuts start, which they're almost guaranteed to start, they're going to become they're going to come fast and furious once they do. That is what the market is pricing right now, and it's gotten to be even more extreme after mid March than it had been beforehand. So, so again, back the to your quote unquote point, bailout of SV uh, Silicon Valley Bank, right? Yeah, that wasn't the end. That was confirmation that we're into the thing now, which is why we got the bad steepening and everything else. So, how does the the way the curve looks now, that Euro dollar future curve, compared to what it looked like in two thousand eight? In some place, I mean, it's comparable in some spots, but in some places, we're even beyond it. You look at the the top in June, the June 2023 is the top. It's the front of quarterly contract. And from there into 2024, it's inverted, last I checked, by 215 basis points, which is off the charts. It's beyond 2008 territory because, because Silicon Valley Bank wasn't the worst of it. It's really, it's the combination of we've got a recession-like economy. Even if it wasn't in recession before March, there's going to be fallout from everything that's happening. So that's going to be bad. On top of it, 
whatever happened, what was really wrong in the banking system wasn't about these couple banks. It's about the system itself. You combine those two things together and the markets are hedged in a way that we haven't, I mean, it's like 2008, but in some ways it's going to be different because it's, it's, you know, nothing ever repeats. Right. So what I try to think through is if, if, if the banking crisis isn't what the main problem is, that's not what the yield curve is predicting. What, what is the main problem? I mean, what is, say it's a tsunami that's coming at us at 500 miles per hour and the bond market is screaming at us to pay attention. What, what is the tsunami? Well, it's, it's, it looks like a banking crisis, but it doesn't necessarily have to be with major banks failing. You know, a Silicon okay. Valley bank, the failure of that bank was a symptom of lack of liquidity, lack of money supply, inelasticity in the entire global system. So that causes problems in the global economy. Trade is much harder to accomplish. You know, credit starts to disappear and dry up. It's a problem in markets because there's there's not as many dealers operating, making spreads. Um, markets become much more volatile. It's a problem for banks that are exposed to, um, like SVB, rather rudimentary liquidity programs and liquidity management um, that don't they didn't realize they need more options. So it's a whole menu of things that are all that all get exposed by the global tide of euro dollars receding as, as far and as fast as they appear to be. So it's it's not one thing or another. It's a lot of things. And it's more things than we can really handle, certainly more things than officials and regulators can handle all at the same time. Yeah. So th the way I try to think about it, and I was listening to uh, Eric Weinstein on a Twitter spaces yesterday, and he was talking about something completely different. He was talking about Trump and everything, but he was using the analogy of a load bearing wall. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I, I tweeted out last night and I'd love to get your take on this. What the yield curve is most likely predicting is, or what typically happens like going back to 2008 is you have a mortgage crisis and that mortgage crisis was basically that load bearing wall in the house collapsing. But what most people don't recognize is why did that load bearing wall collapse? And so the, the example I use is if you got a house where the foundation cracks and starts to, and starts to shift, that's going to put pressure on that load bearing wall to where it may collapse. Then once that goes, then the whole house comes down and then everybody looks at the load bearing wall and says, Oh, we'll see. That was the problem. Right. But in reality, the problem, was that foundation was cracked and that foundation is what uh, you know caused that whole house to come down. It, do you think that's a good way for people to try to visualize what's really happening in the global monetary system? Yeah, especially since as the load-bearing wall starts to fail, the rest of the structure can stay up for a little bit of time before it actually fails too. And that's where we get into the yield curve inversions. They're the cracks that you see in the other walls that say that the structure is really weak and in, in right. danger of falling on itself. And you're right. Everybody wants to find a quick, easy answer. Well, this was just subprime mortgages. It had to have been because that makes sense. We don't have to think too hard about collateral and derivatives and regulatory capital arbitrage because those are the things I have no idea what they are. So we're not going to look at the foundation because it's too hard to get to. We'd have to remove all this dirt and really do a, 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 a comprehensive examination it's easier just to identify a simple problem and leave it at that. And then, of course, we'll invent new ratios and new things that, that the public will then be reassured that 
We learned our lesson from last time and the next time won't happen. I don't know if you saw this, George. There was an article today in the Bloomberg about Credit Suisse and how its liquidity coverage ratio failed it. Because according to the LCR, and Credit Suisse put out this press release just before the merger, their LCR was 150%, absolutely sterling liquidity coverage ratio. Yet the government tells us that if they hadn't had merged UBS and Credit Suisse together, Credit Suisse would have been insolvent. Yeah, so Silicon Valley again, Bank was the same, Jeff. Yeah, so once again, I actually we did see a video on that. All their metrics were like pristine, like two weeks yep. before they went bust. Same with Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and all these other ones. So the lesson here is that government invents these ratios and numbers and everything else to, to not to not that it tells us anything important about the system or these individual banks. It's all for show for the public. So. The markets are looking beyond these LCERs and capital ratios and saying, we're identifying a problem that isn't picked up in all of these regulatory numbers. Because once again, the regulatory numbers are all faulty, misleading, and everything else. In practice, liquidity is nothing like what they measure in the liquidity coverage ratio. And that's what's bothering the marketplace. Right. So the, 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 the core issue here is the global monetary system is broken and it hasn't been fixed. That's the real issue when you get down into the weeds. But we don't know how uh, that core problem is going to manifest itself in the real economy or through a economic recession, depression, crisis, black swan event, et cetera. Yeah, but it's not a black swan. That's the thing. It's it's always unexpected if you're paying attention to Jay Powell or the LCR or all these other things. But <laughs> as you say, I mean, we've been warned about this all along. And so, but you're right. It's it's really, what is the ultimate outcome? What are we really looking at? And that's difficult to predict. Even, you know, you look at, you know, you're using your, your building analogy. Uh, it's structural failures are very hard to predict too, because there are different ways in which everything can move. There's different ways in which everything, there's there's other factors to take into consideration that it's, it's impossible to say right now what is going to happen. We have at best broad outlines for what the general conditions must be like, because we're looking at a market that tells us the Federal Reserve is going to cut, cut its, its benchmark policy rates. After this is after the Jay Powell said, we're not cutting rates. We still want higher rates for longer. The market is certain he's not just going to cut rates once or twice, but a rapid series of cuts. And so that gives us a general sense of a few um, possibilities or scenarios where we could think about just not not in any detailed fashion what yeah. must happen. Or what and must, by the way, what that means hard landing, not soft landing. Yeah, I mean, it's hard landing, but. I mean, that's almost like the base case. What is, how hard is that landing? And if it's a harder than hard landing, what does that mean in markets? What does that mean for bank solvency? What does that mean for countries? I mean, there's really any number of potential problems here. Can you explain how, in your view, OPEC has seen this and that's why they cut production? I think that one's pretty easy, right? Because Oil supplies have been absolutely, I mean, they've been restricted and constrained ever since 2020. They've never come back. Oil inventories before the start of this year had been incredibly low, especially distillates. So supplies should be the only thing we're talking about. Supply should be the only factor which boosts oil prices. But yet, as we saw last month, WTI got down to around $66, largely because of liquidity, but also because of demand concerns. 
And so OPEC is saying, okay, the only way we can keep oil prices up where we want them to be is by cutting supply and cutting supply in the future, which means that we're OPEC even now says or realizes that demand problems are the biggest concern, even for oil that is highly constrained by supply, where the curves are telling us that there really should be at the very least um, more balance towards supply concerns than demand concerns. But yet you still you got that little tiny contango in the front, which is the market hedged for demand being a bigger problem than supply. And OPEC knows it. Right. So they look into the future. They look into the crystal ball. They look at all these curves that you're referring to and it, they see the exact same thing you see. And they're like, OK, well, we'd better get ahead of this demand destruction that, the, that these curves are, are predicting. Therefore, we're going to cut production. So when the demand does go down, we'll still be at call it, you know, 55, 60, where we would have been at 40. Yeah, and the markets are saying there's probably not enough of a, a production cut. There's probably going to be more ahead or prices are going to continue to go down. What are you seeing in, in the charts that would lead you to come to that conclusion about the markets? Right now, we still have a relatively flat front part of the curve, which if if supply was was already really relatively constrained, and now it's going to be even more constrained because OPEC is cut, is, is reducing uh, reducing production. We know the U.S. is not going to increase production. So there's there's no additional supply coming from anywhere. So the WTI futures curve should be steeply backwardated from top to bottom. Instead, okay. it's 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 kind of flat at the front, and then it's still in contango in that very front curve between the first contract, the front contract, and the first one, the next one in line. It's still a couple pennies in contango. That should be the last thing that this this curve should be pricing. It should be completely backwardated, steeply backwardated top to bottom, but yet. The front part of the curve is resisting the supply store. It's resisting the production cut because it's hedged as if, okay, we see OPEC's, we see OPEC's production cut and we'll raise you another demand cut down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, so let's say that we have the, the, the stuff hit the fan in uh, the, the end of 2023. Most people's response is going to be, okay, Jeff, I totally get that. I, I agree. But then the Federal Reserve, we know what they're going to do. They're going to drop rates down to zero. They're going to do QE infinity. They're going to buy corporate debt. They're going to set up all these special purpose vehicles. Who knows? They might even buy stocks. They might do UBI. The government's going to come in and they're going to do a CARES Act 2.0 instead of $5 trillion in deficit spending. It's going to be $10 trillion in deficit spending. And then we just get this cycle that just happens over and over and over again. How would you respond to that? Yeah, we just followed Japan. <laughs> that's exactly the Japanese scenario. That's, I think, when you look at it long run, that's what the markets have been pricing for a very long time, that this would be exactly the outcome that we get to. Every time we have a serious problem, as you said, governments come in and, well, we have to fix it, right? Because we don't really know what's wrong, but the public expects us to do something. And by doing something, they do something that makes it even worse, which almost guarantees that there will be another crisis down the road, which guarantees another. We just get stuck in this, this perpetual cycle of never getting out of it, but only but having to go into worse problems and more interventions and more and more and more and never any actual solutions. That's exactly what the Japanese have experienced for 30 years, which is a frightening prospect. But then again, we've been doing the same thing for 15 years. So we're, we're halfway to Japan as it is. Yeah, but from a standpoint of uh, the CPI, consumer price inflation, do you think that we get that roller coaster ride 
that we saw in the 1940s where one year inflation's at 19% and then two years later it's at negative two and then it goes right back up just based on the government's response. And, you know, I think one main difference between the U.S. and Japan is that the U.S. just took it straight into the back pocket and a lot of money, not just a little bit of money, but a lot of money. And you took some of that, let's say, low velocity money that was sitting in treasuries or in savings accounts. And then, you know, Janet Yellen borrows that. And then she sends that out in stimmies, which now becomes high velocity money or higher. And therefore, you've got uh, the amount of currency units that are chasing goods and services. They're increasing with velocity and they're increasing in just the number, the overall number. So, and then maybe we go back into another decline with disinflation, maybe deflation, and you just ride this roller coaster. That's certainly a possibility, but I wonder, you know, what changed in 2020 and 2021 was pandemic restrictions on the ability of the, the global economy to supply the increase in demand. Right. So if you get in a situation where supply is more elastic than it had been, there may be much less of a pronounced effect on consumer prices the next time. That's really the Japanese, uh, the Japanese example, which was free from any supply constraints in the real economy. Obviously, there were not supply there's supply constraints in the monetary system, but in the real economy, without those supply constraints, you never got the really big spike in consumer prices because that was the bigger factor in my mind in 2020 and 2021. That's what really changed. Uh, QEs, the government intervention, even though you know the, the the treasury helicopter payment, we've seen that before. We saw it in the United States. It wasn't to the same degree, but you remember the Bush administration's helicopter payment in um, March and April, April, March, April and May of 2008. That had a short-term impact in GDP and output, not so much that we can tell in consumer prices. And then of course, longer run overall, didn't do anything. So it may Why? be that we, we get this perpetual government intervention, but I don't necessarily believe it, it becomes consumer prices. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. How did M2 go up by 25% in 2020? And why didn't Japan's M2 go up to the same degree? And why didn't we see M2 go up uh, at least sharply when we got that transfer payment back in, I can't remember, 2008 or nine or whatever? Well, M2 did go up in uh, actually September 2008 and went up by quite a lot, not 25%. I think it was six or seven or 8% because you have to remember M2 is not an exhaustive measure either. So you always have transfers from one form of money to another. Um, M1 to M2, but also shadow money into M2. What happened with M2 in 2008 was you had 
commercial paper conduits, off balance sheet arrangements that some of these banks had backstopped and guaranteed. So what used to be a shadow money conduit or your shadow money, you know, commercial paper, whatever the case may be, suddenly Citigroup said, well, I have to backstop it. So I create a checking account or some other account that used to be commercial paper. So we're just transferring one thing to another. Now, there was some actual increase in M2 in 2020, in 2020 um, to lesser extent in 2021, but a lot of it was also the same type of thing. You had companies that came in and, and activated off-balance sheet liquidity and credit lines just because they were being incredibly defensive. They said, we need to do, we can't be left in the way, same way that we were left in 2008, hoping the Fed bails us out or hoping the Fed does something successful. And in activating a credit line that was existing before the 2020 crisis that creates a checking account. So yeah. suddenly the M2 supply goes up because all these companies are building a liquidity cushion when they're not really doing anything with the cash. So there was there's some of these transfers back and forth, stuff that, that, were, that you didn't know existed before, stuff that uh, operates out in the shadows. And then suddenly you can see it happen because something transferred it into the visible spectrum for lack of a better lack of a better term. Yeah. I remember reading a report from the feds website and uh, they had a few contributing factors, but those were the biggest two. Number one uh, entities drawing down their line of credit. And number two was the fed, uh, you know, through the primary dealers buying assets from non-bank entities. So whenever you have a, a bank entity buy from a non-bank, you're most likely going to increase them too. Yeah, it's, again, it's there's so much stuff outside the visible M's that, you know, you always have to look at what's going on outside before you just take whatever happens to the, uh, the M numbers at face value. Um, because they can, like, you know, 2008 is a perfect example. Money supply did not increase in September and October of 2008. But M2 went, you know, at the time, it went up sharply because there was all of these these uh, transfers, for lack of a better term, between shadow and non-shadow. Do you think it's a, a better proxy for the, I guess, aggregate demand by looking at loans and leases? So if loans and leases are going up, then you can assume that more currency units are being uh, created that are actually the currency units that are chasing goods and services. And if it's going decline, if it's declining, then that's when you really got to be concerned. Or is that something we should throw out altogether as well? Yeah, it's it's aggregate credit, but there's you know it's difficult because there's all different type, types of credit. We also have to keep in mind we shouldn't just be looking at the United States. We need to look at credit outside the United States because this is global reserve currency stuff. What happened? Most of the shadows are outside the United States to begin with, and what happens in the euro dollar system has an impact not just on U.S. credit but other forms of credit and other credit elsewhere around the world too. And it may be that there isn't as much of an impact on U.S. credit, but there's a sharp, severe impact in other places around the world where that will just mean that that sharp, severe impact of some other place around the world will eventually come back to hit the United States. There's timing variances there as well. But you're right. The, the way to look at it is in terms of a comprehensive whole, which includes outside the United States as well as inside and outside the shadows. And really it's about, because the lines between money and credit have blurred so much, mm. it's really about what gets out into the real economy. What is right. the banking system doing? And how much of the banks and non-banks cooperating, working together to get credit and money into the, into the rest of the global economy? 
you know, one thing I've tried to do is break things down into three separate buckets of currency creation. So I think that the main bucket would be banks creating dollars just by lending them into existence. But when they're doing that, they're creating an offsetting liability for whomever is getting those dollars in the form of dollar denominated debt. So that's future demand for debt. And plus you got principal plus interest there. And then the other bucket might be just printing green pieces of paper. And then the other bucket might be a, a bank like the Fed buying from a non-bank entity. But when you look at uh, just the banks creating those currency units through loans, it, it becomes very difficult to understand how the uh, supply demand dynamic can change dramatically. And then I look at Argentina, I look at uh, Turkey as an example. I'm like, well, it's got to be something other than the currency units the banks are creating that cause such a massive amount of it, uh, of their inflation. So do you think that's where those central banks are, are monetizing uh, the debt? They're creating the currency units without that offsetting liability on the balance sheet of whomever was borrowing the currency units to begin with? Well, I look at in those cases, uh, especially like Sri Lanka and Pakistan, too. But those are more extreme cases like Turkey, where it's not so much that they're printing currency to offset, you know, to, to just circulate through the economy is that they have to use dollars to buy most of their basic goods that they need in, internally. Right. And as the dollars have become harder and harder for them to buy, they have to pay more in local currency to acquire dollars, which raises the price of everything that's coming in, as well as raising the circulation of more and more worthless units. So it's, it's, it's the opposite side of the dollar shortage. It's simply just, it's almost a mechanical relationship. So it could be, so looking at Turkey specifically, so it might not be that there were more Turkish lira created, but the velocity of those Turkish lira may have increased substantially because it's taking more Turkish lira to, 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 to buy that dollar good. And they have to deprive sectors of the economy of Turkish lira in order to hoard up enough Turkish lira to acquire dollars. You see this all mm -hmm. the time. The government's like in Pakistan right now, the government will say, well, you're a small business and you want to acquire dollars. Now we have capital controls to make sure that we funnel all the local currency that we can so that the national central bank can buy dollars on the market so that we can participate. So you're also depriving key parts of the economy of monetary resources, which creates all sorts of problems in the economy, which then exacerbates the money problem because then dollar providers look at your economy and say, this is really bad. So I'm yeah. going to provide, I'm going to raise the price of dollars. I'm going to provide fewer dollars, which then the government says even more capital controls. We got to funnel more local currency to the national central bank. And it just, it creates this downward spiral. Let's go back and, and, and focus on us recession and kind of the red flags that we're seeing. Can you talk about the utilization or the recent utilization of the discount window? And then also, can you talk about was it Jeff? Was it the the PBOC that was doing swap lines for yuan? No, that that's right. It was the it was the Fed doing swap lines for dollar. That was my attempt at a joke right there. It was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Only macro geeks like us get that joke. But yeah. uh, let's go over some of the other red flags. Yeah, I wish we had more information on the on the primary credit or the discount window because it used to be the Fed had to report who was using it. Um, because there's there's really two different types of use there. Uh, one would be emergency use, which which I think most people assume is the case. 
Um, in most emergency situations, that's not necessarily what happens. There's what really should happen. What's supposed to happen is quote unquote good banks. The big dealer should be using the primary credit window to, to uh, gain a spread or reinvest cash from the Fed in a spread to lend to these lower banks, the banks that are having trouble. The primary credit dealer uh, discount window, the Fed used to have to report who used it so we could sort who was actually in trouble and you know who was actually, was there more dealers who were willing to relend in the in the markets? But now they've, in order to destigmatize the use of the discount window primary credit, they won't report those names for two years. Oh, I so now we're just that. left with this balance, which tells us that at least if the primary credit goes up as much as it did, what that means is there must have been a systemic deficiency somewhere in some part of the system that was so big, it caused this sort of knee-jerk reaction in the system. That's why I'd love to have more granular detail. But even without it, we can tell it's sort of it, just like 2008 and to an extent in 2020, it tells you about the illiquidity and inelasticity in the private money market that firms were at least doing something with the Fed. And the why same is true. Sorry, Why didn't George. Silicon Valley Bank use the discount window? Yeah, see, that's... They, they, they just needed to get uh, 100 cents on the dollar for their assets, or...? No, see, that's the mystery here. That's 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 what gets us into the more systemic questions, because Silicon Valley Bank should have had a number of options. Among them would repo market, because once you're... Once you, you lose, yeah. you, you're drained of deposits, you've got assets on your balance sheet. Yes, they're illiquid loans, but you can package them and use them as collateral, swap them for treasuries, go into repo, get yourself whole again. You could do term repo and funding. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they go to the primary credit window? Yeah, that's that's a mystery. The, the immediate answer, and this is just speculation, is they didn't have enough quality. They didn't have enough eligible collateral. Because going to the primary credit window, you need to have eligible collateral. There could I have been they were regulatory with treasuries. Well, they couldn't pledge the treasury. That's the thing, because they already sold them. <laughs> so it's they did a bunch of things that just leave you scratching their head. And what they didn't do is even more of a question. And this is, by the way, this is the same question for Credit Suisse. As we said before, the liquidity coverage ratio was 150%, which meant they had HQLA, qualified HQLA of 150% of what was supposed to be their 30-day needs of any type of liquidity deficit. And what, what's high, HQ, high quality? Liquid assets. Okay. Unencumbered. So there's other things here. There's more going on here, it's, which tells us about the fragility of the system. Um, and I think where what was really important about Credit Suisse was not Credit Suisse itself, but the fact that the bank was a huge participant in global repo markets. It was a source of, of cash as well as collateral. And when Credit Suisse was kind of taken out of that, it yeah. left a huge hole in the global system where it wasn't getting collateral and cash being redistributed to repo because so, this one bank was, having, it was in big trouble. Yeah, so that takes us straight into the swap line story. Yeah, I think so. So you go back to last October, and I know we talked about this, uh, yeah. the a couple billion dollars in swap lines, which you know, it wasn't important that it was a couple billion dollars. It was why was anybody doing this in, in, to begin with? And if you remember the global dollar conditions in September and October, it was pretty bad. So we can presume and start to piece together that Credit Suisse was experiencing problems. And as it was experiencing problems, it was doing less of its uh, repo business, which we know we see you can see that in its balance sheet. It cut way back on repo in the fourth quarter, which October is the first part of that quarter. So we can presume that Credit Suisse was pulling back on its repo business, which left a lot of global banks in Switzerland and elsewhere 
unable to source funding from the private markets. So for a couple of weeks, they went to the Swiss National Bank's dollar auctions in lieu of being, eventually they must have arranged some other form of financing. But for a couple of weeks there, it looked pretty bad, which I think tells us that it's, again, it's not about Credit Suisse. It's about what happens when some of these big dealer banks stop doing the things that we need them to do, whether it's because of Credit Suisse, which is experiencing a deposit withdrawal, or some other dealers that might just be experiencing risk aversion because the economy's bad or because the liquidity system's bad. Once dealers stop doing what we need them to do, it leaves everybody else exposed. And that leads us again into what the curves are pricing, which is the consequences of not just one bank or another bank, but all of these banks pulling back on their balance sheets. Whenever I tried to distill this down to the its simplest form to try to understand the problem, it seems to me like the global monetary system is based on one thing, and that's or you know trust and confidence. Call it two things, basically, kind of the similar there. And when you had the 2008 crisis, now all of a sudden that trust and confidence took a massive hit because they're never their balance sheets are never really constrained. You know that that's a view that most people have that I think is inaccurate, where they they think that the you know, the bank needs the Fed's liquidity. And now, oh my goodness, thank, you know, thank the, the heavens that we have these dollars. Now we can go ahead and do X, Y, and Z when people forget that other banks could have created those dollars uh, just as easy as, as the Fed did. So you've got this system prior to the GFC that's strictly built on trust and confidence. Then afterwards, that confidence goes. So now the only thing they can fill that hole with is a lot more pristine collateral because you got to bring that to the table to get that liquidity you need. And now it seems like we're in this kind of back and forth where there's just not enough collateral, but that system still needs it. And the lower the trust and confidence goes, the more collateral it needs. And then it just kind of sputters along. And sometimes that engine just seizes up. So A is, am I seeing it correctly? And B, how do you fix that? How, how do you, because if it's built on faith and confidence, and you can't get that back into the banking system. And the only solution is more collateral. You can't do that either. Where do you go? Yeah, I agree. I think that's, that's the right way to think about it, George. And I would also highlight the fact that since these are, these are individual dealers that are really so important to the systemic operation of the system, you would think that because they're individual dealers, what happens to one shouldn't affect everybody else in terms of faith and confidence and everything else, right? But the dealer network is really kind of a single whole thing. It's individual banks, but they all do the same things at the same time. They're all they're off they're all offloading risk on each other. It's it's very incestuous. So that when one when there's a problem with one, it usually spreads to everybody. So that's that's a that's a that's a big problem to begin with. Is that we don't have we don't have individual pieces. We don't have redundancy. You know, which is what the Fed is supposed to be, by the way. But it doesn't work. We don't have any real redundancy in the monetary system, which causes everybody to, as you're saying, George, I know there's no real effective backstop, so I don't have a lot of faith and trust in the system. I'm going to operate at a low level, and then at the first sign of trouble, I'm going to go running for cover. It's almost like the, the, you know, the groundhog seeing his shadow. Not really something that you should be concerned about under normal conditions, but in, in this lack of faith regime, what can you depend upon? And the only thing you can really depend upon is if you've got collateral and it happens to be the best collateral, but there's just not enough of that to go around. And because of the way the collateral system works, so much reuse and repledging, rehypothecation, 
We also have to have faith and trust in the collateral, right. even though the underlying collateral itself is actually faithful and trustworthy. The circulation and distribution of collateral becomes the same problem of faith and trust as before. So you've got this 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 massive monetary system that 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 contracts and then it, it constricts and then rebounds a little bit and then constricts again. It just back and forth all the time. And then we get into these more extreme situations where it goes too far and has no ability to come back again. So can't you see the central planners getting together and saying, okay, look, we understand this trust and confidence problem and collateral, but really at the our core issue is the asset that is being used for settlement is always going to be a liability of an entity that can go bust. So what we really need is to have uh, these assets as a liability of an entity that cannot go bust. And the only entity out there that can't is the central bank. So instead of swapping all you know these dollars on the balance sheet, instead of the euro dollar system creating all these dollars that are another bank's balance sheet, that are on another bank's balance sheet, and therefore they, they have these risks profiles and they have to be risk has to be considered. Why don't we just move all these liabilities onto the central bank's balance sheets? Then none of these corporations or entities have to worry about that counterparty risk. And now their words, not mine. Do, do you see them kind of taking that next step? And this is why we need a wholesale CBDC. Yeah. Well, there's a couple issues there. First of all, the CBDC governments are not taking them seriously. They're not investing in technology resources and human capital to actually make them legitimately worthwhile. They're just doing it because they have to say they're doing it. So I'm not as worried about a CBDC as, you know, the idea that they need to try to fix a so, uh, fix a situation that they don't really understand what's wrong. Maybe they maybe they do. Maybe they do, George, and say, let's just start over and we'll just have uh, some form of solid, safe asset that everybody uses as currency. Um, it's, it's a liability of the Federal Reserve, for example. But that doesn't mean it's in in theory, it's risk free. In theory, there's no counterparty risk. But in practice, that doesn't mean there are risks. There's risks of, you know, governments um, constricting who can use the currency from political authorities saying only our political allies will be able to use money. We're going to restrict right. how you use it. Right. Um, there's risks that the government will go too far. It will print and make these this this counterparty risk-free currency make it worthless because they'll just print endless streams of it. Yeah, because so they can't go bust. So they don't have to worry about a PL. Right. Exactly. So there are risks with any currency. And I think anybody who's honest and rational about the monetary situation doesn't see that as fixing the problem because it's a problem that can never be fixed. We're imperfect humans, we have imperfect tools. There's always going to be a problem. The, our issue here is to develop a system that's robust enough that when there is a problem, it doesn't go right to DEFCON 1 over the smallest little thing. That's too much fragility. So I think there's always going to be a system that has inherent flaws. But what we need to really think about is minimizing the fallout from those flaws. And the way you do that is, is not by the government taking things over. I think that actually makes it even worse, especially from the private perspective. So is the solution just to have an asset that has no counterparty risk? So what about gold or, or Bitcoin, looking at it through that framework? But then the issue is, can they circulate enough in a way that it gets enough currency available 
first of all, to the current needs of the global economy and the financial system, but also be able to respond to future needs. Again, one of the one of, in fact, the, probably the, the most beneficial aspect of the Eurodollar system was how, because it was bank-centered, because banks had a very huge incentive to service customers, that it was responsive to changes. Because we don't live in a static world. We live in a dynamic world place or dynamic system. Um, so the banks could respond to different needs at different times, different places, uh, technological revolutions, innovations. The monetary system became highly malleable to the ever-changing face of the global economy. And I know sound money proponents are like, well, that's the point. We don't want money to change. We want it to be sound and we want it to be the, the rock upon which everything is built upon. But the, the fact of the matter is the global economy requires malleability and flexibility that you just don't get uh, with, a, with a fixed money system. And in every instance where there is a fixed money system, the people will invent ways to circumvent it. They'll, they'll invent ways to get around monetary constraints when they think the uh, opportunity is worthwhile doing so. I think that's key. Whenever I talk to someone that has that mindset, I go back and I say, okay, you got to ask yourself, why was the Euro dollar system created to begin with? It was created because there weren't enough dollars circulating globally. So how does a fixed money supply solve that? Or maybe better said, how do you think human beings would respond to a fixed money supply? That's, we already know the answer because we can just look back at the Euro dollar system and say, oh, well, what they do is they just take it upon themselves to create however many currency units they need in whatever way they need to. Yeah, so, it was, even before that, George, you go back to the late 19th or late 18th, late 19th century, the 1800s. Um, we had a fixed money system, not the, not necessarily the gold exchange standard or the gold standard, but currency, national currency were liabilities of banks that in order for you to be able to print paper currency, you had to deposit U.S. treasuries with a, with a treasury agent. And then the treasury would print the currency for you. And because there were never enough treasuries back in the 19th century, banks started experimenting with deposits. What we consider today is basic part of the monetary system well, back then was revolutionary. So they couldn't source enough treasuries that constrained the ability of banks to create money. They invented, they didn't invent a new way, but they they used the old deposit way of, of creating money to create as much money as necessary. Even though you know there was they could borrow treasuries, they could they could find different ways to source treasuries too. They, you know, whatever the constraint was, whether it's not enough gold and not enough gold in the vault or treasuries that they could deposit with the with the treasury department. They found new ways to create new money, which led us to the Great Depression. Yeah, that that's really kind of the catch twenty two. With it's always uh, extremes. With a fixed money supply is is on paper it's ideal, but then when you add human nature on top of that, that's when in practice it it never seems to pan out. Yeah, so we all should we should always be mindful of the limitations and the consequences to both sides of the equation. If you have a hard money system, it's going to constrain economic growth, legitimate economic growth. At the same time, it's going to force the system to invent new forms of money that we may not be able to understand and control, which could lead to all sorts of negative consequences too. Also understanding too that a perfectly elastic system will lead human beings to do what human beings always do, which is go way too far. 
So the best the best solution is to recognize the downside case of our, both sides and try to find some middle ground where it's flexible enough that it can meet the needs of a dynamic marketplace and economy while also being easy enough to understand as well as relatively constrained in some fashion that it can't well it will <laughs> when it does get out of control it doesn't lead to total chaos and disorder. Yeah, but how do you do that globally? That's with the thing. Two hundred plus countries. Exactly. So it's is if it's if it's pick your poison. Which one do you pick? Do you pick the hard money or do you pick the elastic currency? I guess that that's a question that we've got to leave for another day, buddy. Um, I guess lastly here, if you're going to give us some predictions on uh, what you see for the rest of 2023, based on all these esoteric curves that you look at, what would be like your top three predictions? <laughs> a bad 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 i don't i mean it's again it's so, difficult to predict exactly what like will recession fed lowering rates and then uh you know further issues with, with banks or something like that yeah example. but those aren't even really predictions because we've already kind of got those and <laughs> even the fed lowering rates is i mean that's even i think even the most skeptical of recession and, and the you know, deflationary money would have to say yeah the probability of the Fed lowering rates in the second half of the year is a lot higher than I would like to admit. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those aren't really much of a prediction because the markets are saying these are these are certainties. So if you're looking at what the second half of the year looks like in very general terms, yeah, rate cuts, um, probably recession. So our, our real questions are about how bad does it get to force the Fed to do a lot of rate cuts? What does that actually mean? Um, does that mean that banks are failing? I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I don't think we need that. Um, I think we could have massive financial problems and volatility anyway. Is the stock market going to tank and that will force the Fed to do something because we know how much the Fed loves the stock market, likes to be able to say, look at that, look at shares are telling you the economy is doing really well. Um, I think that's part of it too. We have to consider financial volatility is a problem, uh, a likely problem to deal with too. Um, what do you think about not... unemployment and CPI, Jeff? Yeah, well, I think that the CPI is taken care of. Uh, at some point, the CPI just completely normalizes itself because you think we get of... back. You think we go to deflation or just more disinflation? I think at first it's disinflation. It might be outright deflation. I don't expect outright deflation to last like several years. We're not looking at something like the 1930s. It's like 2009. It, be, it could be like 2009 where we get a couple of months of negative CPI. Um, certain consumer prices, consumer, consumer, certain producer prices that actually do turn negative. I think that would be a, a, a possibility. I think OPEC sort of hinted at one of those <laughs> with their recent move in pr production cuts. But it, it's it's simply just, it's it's really, if you try to look and find anything that's positive, there's just a dearth of positives potential positives out there. It's, it's not even worried about inflation reigniting. It's all of these other things that were, that would, what would happen? What would have to happen so that we could avoid them and the possible, uh, the possibilities of avoiding these worst uh, situations just keep getting limited, more limited and limited all the time. And then what about unemployment rate? You're seeing that the, the jobs numbers start to kind of roll over there, you know, there, the employment numbers have been relatively stable, nothing really concerning, but that's not unusual either because unemployment, as you know, George, is usually one of the last thing that happens. So I think the unemployment, the mass mass layoffs, 
that's probably part of the second half of the year where that really right. convinces if the Fed was on the fence about rate cuts, that would probably push them over the edge. So I think there's what we see of the labor market now is that a lot of businesses are concerned. They're worried. They're making minor adjustments on their cost structure. And then March happens and stuff happens after March. And they say, that's OK. Now we really have to make big adjustments and they start cutting like they did in 2008, 2009. Yeah, makes sense. All right, buddy. I want to remind everyone that you're going to be at Rebel Capitalist live in May 12th uh, through the 14th, Orlando. You can get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. And then for people who want to find out more about what you do, tell them about Euro Dollar University, the podcast, and everything you got going on with Steve and Tracy. Yes, Euro Dollar University, Markets Insider Pro. If you're interested in research subscriptions, I contribute a daily briefing talking about the day's macro events, as well as what's going on in these esoteric curves. That's part of Markets Insider Pro with Stephen Van Meter and Tracy Shukart. They contribute some research pieces there. You can get a bundle. Um, a YouTube show, I do that almost daily, six days a week usually. So that's on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Eurodollar University. There's also a podcast, a podcast format for it too. And I also have other research subscriptions and memberships at Eurodollar University, the website, which is eurodollar.university, conveniently enough. <laughs> all right jeff thanks for those insights buddy i look forward to seeing you in may all right george i'm looking forward to it too it sounds like it should be a, a pretty interesting and entertaining affair yeah i think we're gonna have just as much if not more to talk about then than we do right now i hope not <laughs> I, I hope it's boring as hell <laughs> all right, i don't buddy, think it will be one. but i hope so